Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Uh, We're looking um, at Psalm 19 uh, this morning, a series of different psalms for the summer times. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, uh, all you do now is put your hand up, and then Malcolm would bring you one, um, Malcolm or Rodney, one will come, you just stick your hand up, and then Psalm 19 is, for all intents and purposes, as close to the middle of the Bible as you can get. So flip it open and see where it falls. They're coming. <clears throat> with people coming and going with summer holidays, uh, we tend in the summer not to follow sometimes too much of a a consistent series through one book or one character, um, but to drop around a little bit. And so we're looking at a, a series of psalms these, these summer Sunday mornings. Everyone got? Now let's um, pray together because what we do when we read God's word is something so significant. Sometimes it can just wash over our heads and we do want God to speak to us. So as we prepare to read the psalm together and uh, study its meaning, let's pray and ask for God's help. God, our Father in heaven, you are a God for all our ages. We thank you that you you watch over the little children who have been making their happy noises here already. Grant them your protection. You have placed such profound coding in the, the chips of their personality as they develop. We thank you you're a God for the kids. You're the God who's been speaking to different ones at camp, in their teens. And as we, O oh God, sit before you now, with our hearts just as you see them, our needs and fears and hopes, O oh God, would you teach us, we pray, encourage and challenge and feed and direct us by your living word. May it speak to us. Individually, we pray. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 19, then. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, 
than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern their errors? Forgive my hidden fault. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of, shall I say, all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you ever come to church, um, perhaps on a Sunday morning, with a tremendous uh, longing uh, beginning to surface in you that God might speak to you personally. I think sometimes too we can sit in a congregation like this and feel um, only half there and then as we see and watch, look around at other people, somehow we feel that they appear to be more in touch with God than we are. And you can get, um, strangely, you can get jealous of others around or you can even get cross with them in a perverse sort of way or cynical about them this whole question of how does the God who has made us and put us here how does he continue to speak to us is very often a puzzle and uh, a mystery we live in a world nowadays that is absolutely bursting with communication I mean we in Salterson are used aren't we to, to the, the doctor's mobile phones going off We've got two of them here this morning. I don't know who's got the phone, but uh, again and again, it, it's sort of, they're sitting even beside each other. Neither. Oh, it's, it's John's on duty this weekend. Um, it bleeps and out they go. You know, we're used to that. We're used to um, faxes being read out from Albania, of all places, where one of our sort of mission teams has gone. Albania that you didn't used to be able to communicate with. Now Chris and the team uh, are sending um, faxes for us to read out, or they come from Hong Kong, another missionary there. We're used to satellites circling. Uh, sitting in front of, of uh, I was away this last week with a, a TV with, I don't know how many channels there were, but far more than I'm used to at home. And I could just sit on the bed and do my little flicker and uh, dodge about. It's bad for the brain. I'm now on email. This is an astonishment to my friend. I don't know how to work the thing. I am receiving messages from students around the country, from different uh, UCCF staff that I work with. To get the thing to work, I have to summon my son, my 17-year-old son from the attic where he, he lives and, and plays with these things, down to tell me which button to push next. I don't know how to send things or get things back. It's a total mystery to me, but I'm learning. It is actually far faster for me to write the thing out by hand and walk down to the box at the end of the road and post it but I, I have to get with the modern world and learn to, to communicate this kind of stuff. And eventually my son will be redundant in about three years. We human beings are communicators. Did you notice a week or two ago in the newspapers all that fuss about they discovered some microscopic microbes or something from Mars? And all the speculation was whether life had developed to such a point where we could communicate with it. I mean, what communication do you have with a germ or a microbe? But they thought that something might have developed somewhere in this great universe and we could communicate. That was the whole point. 
Is it or are they sending messages? Are they green people with tiny heads on stalks or what, what can we communicate? Because communication is one of the most profound things about us as human beings. We are made in the image of God. We are designed for a relationship, a communicating relationship with Him. So why then do so many of us find this business of communicating with God on a regular basis such a puzzle? So difficult. Something about which we often feel awkward or dissatisfied. We think there must be more to to communicating with God than what we know so far. Well, Psalm 19 is, is about the way God communicates, or at least, can I say this, three of his main ways. C.S. Lewis, the uh, great professor of English literature, said, I take this, speaking of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, that high praise from the old professor. Three parts to it. The first six verses, the way in which God communicates through the natural world around. And then from verses 7 to 11, the way in which God communicates through Scripture. And then finally, the last few verses, how God communicates with us through our own consciences. First then, the first six verses, nature, the the heavens declare the glory of God, says David. You imagine it. About a thousand BC, we're talking three thousand years ago. A shepherd, a military leader, centuries before all the pollution that has clouded our nighttime skies, when things were so fresh, so clear, and he was so at home in the natural world. The heavens, he would say, day or night, declare the glory of God. The skies declare God's glory. And the more you know about the infinity out there, the light years that it takes to cross the universe, the more we wonder at God's imagination. Sometimes in the summer, if we're fortunate enough to be able to to go away from here, we, we get a chance to look at things, to gaze at things that we don't normally see. Sunsets over the sea, uh, mountains, the salmon running, birds flocking together, migrating. And as you just sit and ponder these things, our souls can be touched. And we need that. And we can praise God as we respond to the natural world around us. This pouring forth of God's glory and God's greatness, says the psalm, is incessant, verse 2. Look at that. Day after day, then night after night, it's incessant. In verses 3 and 4, it's universal. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The skies are always speaking the same language. The world over to primitive and sophisticated, or so-called sophisticated people. It's also essential. That which the skies communicate to us, where would navigation be? Where would guidance across the seas and through the deserts be if it were not for the stars down through the centuries? Incessant, universal, essential. Creation, it's been said, is God's braille for a blind humanity. 
But I've got a question. All this talk about the skies and the world of nature speaking, declare. I mean, it says there, they declare in verse 1. They proclaim, they pour forth speech. Uh, there's language, voice, words from the world of nature, all about God. Can I ask, what is it saying? Supposing you are staying for your holidays in a Pyrenean campsite, enjoying the beauty of creation. And that night, a flash flood carries away and destroys over a hundred others in that campsite. What is nature actually saying? Some of you may remember those sentimental lines by a, a 19th century poet, Dorothy Frances Gurney. The kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth. One is nearer God's heart in a garden than anywhere else on earth. You've seen that sometimes printed. Any garden? The one at the back of Frederick and Rosemary West's house in Gloucester? where they buried those bodies of the poor folk that they had killed. There is undoubtedly something of God which can be seen in nature. Romans 1 talks about nature telling us of his power and his divinity. But the knowledge that we get of God from the natural world is very limited and is sometimes disturbing. And it seems to me that there are some folk who never get further in their knowledge and understanding of God than merely a kind of sentimental response to the natural world around. And so their knowledge of God goes up during the summertime when they are away on holiday and then sort of sinks back down to sort of industrial, normal, Coventry levels in the rest of the year. We have many, many questions, don't we, as human beings, made in God's image, which, looking up at the skies and uh, enjoying the beauties when we are exposed to them of the natural world, questions which all that doesn't help us with. Things to do with our consciences, or our families, or, or marriages, if that is our situation, or our sicknesses, or our feelings about things, or what is the future of this planet, or our own future. You won't get a lot of help with those kind of questions from just gazing at the beauty of creation. John Updike, the American novelist, um, wrote a short story once with a very odd title. Packed dirt, church going, a dying cat, a traded car. The title of his short story. What he did was weave together four incidents um, from his life showing how sometimes we can sense in our lives a, a larger pattern of meaning to the events around us. We can receive somehow suspicions of God's voice, but it's, it's just not clear. In the dying cat um, episode of those four, he speaks about how his wife was in labor in hospital, um, producing one of their children, and he was um, driving there, and he came upon a cat dying in the road. 
And he stopped, he pulled over, he, he tried to care for the cat. Uh, he could see that it probably wasn't going to live. So he, he, wrote, <laughs> he wrote a message which he was going to sort of send to the owners of the cat and tuck it under the body if they eventually found it, found it to say that he'd sort of cared for it and so on. I mean, actually in the stories he says, he, the cat with his eyes seemed to suggest, you're making too much fuss, just run on home. And later that night, when he was back home, the phone rang, and um, he was told of the birth of a daughter. And he said, life seemed to have taken on greater significance. And he described this as the sort of cat-plus-baby-daughter event. And he called it supernatural male. It had the signature, but it was illegible. The things that happen, the things that we see, the circumstances of, of life can sometimes suggest meanings or pointers or directions to us. The world of nature can speak of God. And sometimes our tired souls need more of that. But it's all in a very limited sense. We need God to speak of himself. And so David the psalmist probably with a better knowledge of the natural world than maybe any of us here. In the middle of his psalm, in, in verse um, 7, suddenly switches to talking about Scripture, the much more sure vehicle of the voice of God to us. See, God doesn't only paint pictures, or do landscape gardening, or, or cloud sculptures, or, or put on sort of uh, sound and light shows in nature. He speaks directly and personally and privately with his still small voice to us individually. There are six terms for scripture in those verses between 7 and 11. He calls it the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, and so on. But for our purposes, um, they're all the same. The Bible. And David says the word of God does five things for him. Believe this. Enter into this experience. He says, first, it revives his soul. He finds there wells up within him fresh hope, fresh purpose, fresh encouragement, just reading the stories of other people's experience in Scripture. Seeing the way God rescued them. Seeing the way in which God has stuck by them. God has given them hope. God has directed them. The word of God revives my soul, he says. And then he says in verse 7, the word of God makes simple people wise. Sometimes we are not simple enough, I suspect. But so much trouble is caused within families and business and life generally by over-hasty reactions and by not seeing what's important and by getting priorities wrong. And David says, in my experience, that regular chewing on the word of God can go an awful long way to curbing that kind of thing. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, said the Apostle Paul. As you teach one another with all wisdom. Let the word of God fill your heart and mind. It will make simple people much wiser. And then thirdly, David says, the word of God gives joy to the heart. There springs up within us that kind of birthright for the Christian of the joy that Jesus promised. My peace I leave you to my joy I give unto you, he says. 
I think there's a tendency often for our fallen human emotions towards the gloomy. Left to ourselves uh, and cut off somehow from the word of God, we will become imperceptibly more and more gloomy and grumpy. Meditating on the Psalms, meditating on the Gospels, on the Lord's instructions, leads to a return of joy, says the Word of God. Fourthly, the Word of God gives light to the eyes. I don't think this means people go around like, like sort of models or actresses who are suddenly aware that somebody might be pointing a camera at them. Or as if someone's stuck an injection of, of, of speed suddenly in you. No, it's not that your eyes suddenly look weird. It is that you are able to see better. Seeing where you're going. Seeing what's happening. Seeing your direction in life. It gives light to your eyes so that you no longer stumble along through life in the darkness. And fifthly, uh, David says, the scriptures give warning. How often have we sensed, as we have read the word of God or listened to it being preached, just a quiet hand on the shoulder from God saying, you ought to be doing this you ought to be avoiding that. A word of, of warning. What a tremendous amount he's claiming. Revival, wisdom, joy, direction, warning, when God's word is heeded. So David says to me, look, the scriptures have become gradually, over my life, to me, worth more than gold, than a double rollover lottery win. Much fine gold. Seems to me people sometimes aim at arriving at retirement with enough money for a very comfortable retirement. And yet in the process, they've got so little in their larder, mentally and emotionally, from the word of God. David says, I tell you, this is worth more. Come to your old age with this and not merely cash. He speaks of the taste of scripture. Sometimes at camp, particularly the kind of camps that Sue goes to, you know, they have competitions where, where people have to eat um, dry Jacob's crackers. You know, you have to eat two in a minute. Have you ever been into those things? It is very difficult, actually. You try it before lunch. And some of us can get the feeling that Scripture actually tastes like chewing through dry, I shouldn't say Jacob's cream crackers, that's deemed as sort of negative advertising. Anyone else's cream crackers that you want. Horrible. Now they taste sweeter than honey, and in keeping of them I find great reward. Verse 11. How should we, we, we be responding to, the, to this? This psalm, this morning, as I draw towards a conclusion. For many, I think it's, some anyway, maybe many, it's just a case of getting back to listening to God in his word with a prayerful heart. That making a bit of time for that regular reading and feeding your own soul. You can get notes to help you from a local Christian bookshop. You can get things like the Bible Speaks Today series or the Crossway Bible Guide so that you can take a whole book and just work through it in easily digested little segments. So that the Word of God is shaping your attitudes and your heart and your relationships and your future and your dreams and everything. Great food, great reward. Tapes may be on the way to work or set times at home. For me, I think probably the most rewarding times over the years have been in study with others. I think of, of hours spent with, uh, with uh, Kim and Andy Fulcher, Richard Dunn, Lawrence at times. We, we've, we've spent in 
just reading and chewing over the word of God together. I think we need more of that, probably, um, in the church. In the early church, this was one of the, I should say, this was the single most important thing that those Christian apostles were, were pleading for. When the writer, whoever it was, that wrote the epistle of the Hebrews, comes to chapter 2, he says, look, don't drift away from the word of God. You can drift. Just gradually, day by day, drifting further away. Paul says to Timothy, look, there will come a time when people will find welling up in them, this is 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, a kind of impatience with the word of God. They want something else. Their itching ears will be clamoring for something other than what God has actually said. So, the world of nature, the world of scripture, and then finally and briefly, he speaks in verses 12 to 14 of the conscience. David shows how a revived, um, refreshed, instructed conscience can also become the source of, of God's voice to us. Hidden faults come to light, he speaks of that. Who can discern their errors? Well, we can't on our own. But, oh God, forgive my hidden faults. Things that we don't know about, verse 12. Or the things that dominate you. May your servant be kept also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Fears and habits and feelings that actually are almost the master. May God keep us from that. So three voices then. The skies, the scriptures and the soul, if you like those kind of um, uh, alliterations. But in the middle, anchoring the rest, is the word of God. Keeping us, on the one hand, from pantheism and on the other hand, from mysticism. I think we're going to see in, in the churches of this country, more and more in the next couple of years, an emphasis on what we may term Celtic spirituality. We saw a first dangerous eruption of this in the nine o'clock service in, um, in Sheffield, but I've been coming across more and more examples of church leaders in other networks, evangelical networks, teaching people to go into Celtic spirituality, seeing and hearing God in creation. We're being told in certain quarters that he is in the wind and the rivers and, and the harvests and the life cycles and so on. And in the process, people denying many of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. There will come, in the next uh, three to five years, a much greater emphasis on a return to uh, the practice of, of being hermits, of being places like monasteries, of visions of angels, and all these features of that kind of pantheistic Celtic Christianity. I want to say this is not the place to go into this at any great length, but in many of its forms and some of its emphases, this is not biblical Christianity. That is why David puts at the heart of his emphasis on creation and the conscience, the, the inner world of communicating with God. He puts this, this great central panel in the psalm on the scriptures. The scriptures point to the glory, uh, sorry, the world of, of nature points to the glory of God. But the natural world is not God, nor even his clothing. What would, let me end with this, what would a proper Psalm 19 experience be like? You might um, say, go for a walk at dawn, or go sit some quiet place where you're not interrupted by other people. Place without distraction. And gaze, ponder, and meditate, and praise the Creator for his glory that is thereby manifested. And then, read and meditate upon God's word. Because here he truly speaks. 
And then a final response in, in verse 14. As we open ourselves up to the God who does communicate in words, the sure sign of that is that we will want to communicate in words back with him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my own heart, may they please you. May they be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are my strength and my rescuer, my rock and my redeemer. You notice how just at the end, prophetically, the Lord Jesus himself is starting to appear in this psalm. Because he is the ultimate secure way in which God has conveyed to us who he is and what he's like and what he wants. He is God's ultimate word to us. May the Lord help us to make time these days for all three of these particular ways in which God seeks to reach out and speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, you watch over our souls. You are the shepherd and the guardian of our souls as we we read in your word. Help us to seek you with a whole heart. Help us not to be afraid of our imaginations, of that spirit which you have put within us to reach out to you. Lord, may we be richly indwelt by your word as we seek to walk in your ways. May that even the smallest thoughts of our heart be pleasing in your sight. Because you are our strength and our eternal redeemer. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.